And we're back with another episode of Awareness to Action Enneagram Podcast. My name is Creek, and I'm with my vivacious co-hosts, Mario Sikora and Maria Jose Minita. How are we all doing today? Uh, we feeling vivacious? vivacious? Is that in comparison and... to you, you mean? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Filled with vim and vigor. Yes. Yeah. Uh, audience, I... Um, I slept through Just my alarm and, yeah. and yeah, it's like four in the afternoon. <laughs> okay, no. rolled out of bed, Mister Rock and Roll Lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was like I had such a restful weekend that just my body just woof fell into it it was it was great so anyways that's you. why my voice is slightly deeper than normal um i'm you trying just to match to mario sound like mario yeah, yeah. Exactly. There, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah we are we are focusing on the core quality at point one um, which is objectivity as well as the connecting points um, point one and uh, point four and seven, which is individuality and joy. Um, so, Maria Jose, let's talk about this core quality at point one. So, the core quality at point one is objectivity. And as we have said in previous episodes, most people think of objectivity as something that fives should have or should be the core quality for point five. But we think it's the core quality for point one. <laughs> and um, it is, um, it means the ability to see a situation accurately without being influenced by bias, prejudice, or emotion. So it is just seeing things as they are. And for most of us, we do have ideas about things as they should be, or we want them to be, or uh, need to be, and it's really, really hard to think, to see things as they are. So we would all benefit from nurturing this core quality, and we will see that for type one, the loss or the stunting of this core quality is more acute, but it is something that we would all benefit from. If I can draw the distinction between the uh, point one and the point five here, because I, I think it's an important one that uh, Maria Jose pointed out there. When we're talking about this core quality, we're talking about a way of seeing or a quality of seeing the world rather than understanding the world or knowing how to act in it, which is more the intuition we talk about at point five. So the what when we're talking about objectivity, what we're talking about is kind of a a quality of perception that stands back and sees it as it is without our prejudice and preconsumptions, like Maria Jose said. So that's that's the distinction, right? So it's it's about a way of seeing more so than what we do with what we see or how we act upon it or even what we learn from it, which again are more qualities of 0.5. It's not, is it even possible to be completely objective? Like what's, what's the line there? No, it is not possible. I think that the closer we can get is to see all these filters we have, all these preconceptions we have and understand that those are there which will eventually allow us to see more objectively, but never completely objectively, because we'll have, there will be more layers of filters. 
and biases. So it's just getting closer to it. I like to think of it like we're polishing the glass through which we see the world. You know, it's funny. I was, I was trying to read some of the other sources that talk about the essential aspects, right, which, are, which the core qualities are derived from. And it does have that idea that there is this pure objectivity that we can tap into. In fact, they don't refer to it as objectivity. It's more that it's called brilliance or something, right? Which, again, I, I just don't know what to do with. And uh, there is this assumption of judgment that I see everything exactly as it is, and I'm okay with everything as it is. And I understand that the universe is unfolding as it should and all of those things. That's not our view, right? We don't have this perspective that, you know, oh, everything happens for a reason and the world is, is as it should it be. Yeah, everything's perfect as it is. And, you know, you just have to step back and understand that there's a bigger wisdom and a bigger knowledge and all this sort of stuff. No, it's not. I, I'm everything of the Homer is. Simpson. As it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everything is as it is, but that doesn't make it right or, perfect. you know, anything like that or perfect, right? It, it's now, if, if, we, if we think of perfect meaning a whole, right? Meaning it's the sum total of everything. You know, if we think of Spinoza's conception of God being the totality of what is, right? And you could say, okay, well, that's that's perfection. Eh, you know, all right, whatever. But it's, you know, I'm of the view that I call the Homer Simpson philosophy of how the world works that, you know, oh, Marge, life's just a bunch of stuff that happens. And we have to see it that way, that it's a bunch of stuff that happens and some of it we can control, some of it we can't, some of it happens to us, some of it we cause to happen. But what we can control or manage better is the biases and opinions and beliefs that we develop along the way. And that's what the work at point one is all about. Like Maria Jose said, is learning to manage those biases, learning to adjust for those biases, and learning to minimize those biases. Not everyone who says the world is is unfolding just as well, I forget how exactly you phrased it, but it that not everyone who says that is is making some sort of essential argument. I think a lot of people mm -hmm. who are saying that it's just like you have no choice but to see that it is what it is and it is unfolding in a particular direction, whether you like it or not. And you have to become okay that it is unfolding the way it is. Not okay with sure. how it's unfolding and that everything is right and good and perfect. Yeah, well, well, that's exactly the point. And it's, you know, if somebody says, well, things are as they are, well, yeah, I, I agree with that. If somebody says, well, things are as they should be, that's a different claim, right? And that's the claim that we would, you know, not be comfortable making sure um, it's all yeah. i mean that also just brings up the question of who's to say what things should be yeah well yeah <clears throat> one thinks to do that <laughs> i have to say but not that they're correct but i think yeah. that there's this call inside within the one that uh, compels yeah. them to uh, yeah. say how things should be. But 
Yeah. One's a volunteer for the job, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because they feel most uncomfortable with this idea, you know, that the, the objectivity becomes stunted in them and that they're the ones that feel it most acutely. And so they step up to fill that <laughs> discomfort, you know, for themselves and everybody around them uh, with, you know, some sort of attempt at moral clarity. Do morals become a substitution for this sense of objectivity or, or seeing things, um, they, they are what they are? Yes. I think that that's one of the things. Mm -hmm. So it is, it's this need for a set of rules that it could be morals, it could be other things, but that uh, try to explain what it is or how it should be and um it's kind of the replacement for the true objectivity that it's a um, um strategy of striving to feel perfect but it's the striving to feel perfect has kind of behind it an assumption that i know what perfect is and I, I, I would suggest, yeah. Go ahead. I, I would suggest it's not so much the creation of morals, but the imposition yeah. of morals, uh, or a moral perspective that is problematic. Right? I mean, we need moral guidelines. We need ethical guidelines. And the, you know, when ones are at their best, and when we're all getting close to objectivity, we come up with good moral guidelines, but we don't feel the need necessarily to impose them on others. And we don't become stuck in them, right? We don't start living by rules that might have applied and might have made sense a thousand years ago, um, but, but don't now, okay? So that we realize, okay, as times change, our moral assessments might change and so forth. So uh, so it's more about wh where we run into danger is not so much the creation of moral codes, but the strict and non-bending and non-flexible imposition. They're more adaptive. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that we kind of can adjust them so that they benefit us, but it's they're more attuned to the situation, the times. Mirza, could you maybe give us a story or something like that of what does it feel like to have objectivity stunted? What does that feel like in an everyday situation? And Or maybe do you have a moment where like you feel like you're able to um, kind of change your story and step into the core quality of objectivity? Sure. Um... <laughs> <laughs> On my way here, I was thinking about that. And honestly, it's very hard to do so without touching on the connecting points as well. Because they're very, very related. In my case, so type one, my experience is that whenever I'm dealing with, a, with certain situations, I have to, it's not all the time, it's not 24-7, but certain situations it's very hard for me not to think about the standard or the perfect 
idea of that situation. And that has to do with my behavior, with the people around me. I mean, were there with their behavior or the world. It's like whenever I'm dealing with something, I naturally think about how it should be and how it is. And I see that gap. For me, that's just natural. And I see that as an objective truth. It's like, of course, this is how it should be. And that expectation that I tend to believe the world has on me feels very real. <laughs> but because it's thinking that that standard, that those expectations are objective, it's how it should be. It's real. It's when I'm able to see through that, when I'm able to question the um, validity of those expectations, of that standard, of that thing that I'm comparing myself and the world with, and I see how it's just my background or my parents' messages or the cultural, I don't know, biases, and I'm able to relax that. And I'm able to see how things really are. They're more complex. I think that complexity allows me to see through those things, understanding that things are a lot more complex than I want them to be. It's relaxing. I cannot think of any other word that relaxing when I'm more objective. Hmm. Um, it's interesting because when you think about objectivity, it feels really mental, you know, that you see things clearly, you know. But for me, it's a state of relaxation mm -hmm. because I stop fighting against that gap. Yeah. And it allows me to just enjoy more mm -hmm. and behave as I want to, not as I should. And you can see how the point seven and four get into the story here. So it's not a concrete example because I would have thousands. But that's kind of the process that I go through. Mm. That aspect of understanding the complexity is a big part of objectivity, right? Whenever we think about when we rush to judgment about something, it's usually because we don't understand the bigger picture. Right? We don't understand the circumstances. We don't understand all the facts or have all the facts. So when we're talking about objectivity, we're, you know, objectivity from a, a philosophical perspective is those things that are true, whether we want them to be or not, right? We can all look at the same thing and see, okay, yes, that's a table or that's a dog or, or whatever, okay? Um, it doesn't matter what we how we feel about it right it's just it's what it is um, subjectivity is something that's very personal and may not be shared okay so we get closer to objectivity like Marie Jose is saying is by stepping back and seeing the the complexity and opening up to the complexity of something and letting go of this idea that we have to have an opinion Right. We have mm -hmm. to know 
what the answer is. So you know, wait, wait, let me let me let me let me think about this. Let me get the bigger picture. Right? Uh, somebody asks our opinion about you know world affairs, okay, or a particular legal case in the news or something like that, and we all want to rush to judgment. We all want to have an opinion about it. Okay? And most of us have no clue what we're talking about, right? And what the objectivity of the one does here is allows us to step back and say, time out. Let's look at this from a bigger perspective. And, you know, and this is one of the gifts that Maria Jose brings to me in our relationship is this ability to say, take a deep breath here, right? Step back, look at the big, bigger picture. Okay, because my tendency is to rush in like a bull in a china shop. And, you know, and she says, well, okay, let's think about this as well. Okay, because she's better able than I am to be able to step back and see things from a, a broader perspective. Maria Jose, can you talk to us about the complexity and, and leaning into that? And I can relate to that because... I complexify an issue to get more perspective, and it does. It is relaxing. Like, oh, I don't have to figure this out. I don't have to know what's going on completely. I can just hold these things in tension because all of these things are true. But that also can become paralyzing when you're, I don't know, trying to make a decision. I'm like, I see all the complexity of this decision. Um, how do you handle that? So I think we all have, but I'll talk as a type one this idea of what of what should be what's right what's wrong and when you assess situations through those lenses usually there's one answer there's one correct course of action in your mind when you start seeing the subtleties of it when you start seeing how complex we are how and not only around us but within ourselves and how there's a part of me that wants to do this but there's another part of me who wants to do that which is exactly the opposite I want to do both and to me I think that although holding that tension is difficult when you are able to go beyond that and accept that those two things are there that all these different pieces are there. It's more complex than I thought it was or would like it to be, but it is that way. If I allow myself to look at all the real options, not only the should-be options, I'm able to make a better choice because I'm looking at everything. The alternative is just repressing what shouldn't be. So I'm not looking at all the options. So my choices are limited, and I will probably make worse decisions. So I think that once you learn to hold that tension, it's liberating, but also feels <laughs> more perfect because <laughs> you can make more fulfilling choices. Part of the complexity is understanding that... Uh, um, there's a time to make a decision, right? It's not just assessing the variables in a problem, but it's understanding that one of those variables is at some point I need to act or not act, okay? So that's part of the complexity we're weighing. And when we're doing that more effectively, we're able to make a decision, right? We don't become hamstrung by mm -hmm. it because we say, okay, now it's time to decide. 
And and when you make a decision and perhaps it doesn't go as planned because you've already seen the complexity, it's a lot easier to forgive yourself if you made the quote-unquote wrong decision or you're able to adapt to the decision that you made because you understand the complexity. Yes? I think that um, all decisions have costs. And... Mm -hmm. When you understand that things are complex, you'll see the pros and cons of a decision and don't expect it to go without pain. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, I think that you can forgive yourself easy, I mean, faster or readjust or just suck it up, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and uh, accept the costs that it brings understanding that that's still what you want to do. You, you made reference to readjusting there, which I think we want to highlight a little bit more because you can say, okay, well, this was not the right decision. And so I'm going to change mm-hmm. it, right? And, and it's when we get trapped by that, well, I've got to stick to this decision because I made it. Um, we look at, okay, Maybe I don't need to stick to this decision, but then the question becomes, am I changing it just because it's hard and I don't want to do it? Or am I changing it because I genuinely made a a bad decision or a a suboptimal decision and there's a better way to do it? And then objectivity tells us to go ahead and make that change as well. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, it's again, all of these things are complicated. Right. We can't just say, okay, well, I decided. So I got to stick with it, you know, even if I go blind or something, you know. Um, yeah, so, because ahead, object, objectivity is kind of always expanding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because you're not there, you don't get there. It's expanding and you might change your mind once you see more data. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Once you have another insight that you had not seen before. And uh, and that could be as a result of what the decision, of the decision you made, or just things that you saw later and i think that more than forgiving yourself i think that to me again it's these relaxing or being okay with changing your mind being okay with seeing things differently being almost excited of seeing things differently that's my uh, experience at least you don't have to forgive yourself because you realize there's nothing to forgive, right? There's there's no reason to seek forgiveness. Okay, I thought this, now I think that, right? I, I have more information, I see it differently. Again, Unless you damage someone. Well, then you apologize to them for damaging yes. them. Sure, yeah, of course, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah. this is not a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? So, uh, Just being objective, uh, yeah. gosh. <laughs> yeah, right, you know, so. Um, but again, this is, this is a way of thinking rather than a state, right? Or it's a quality of, uh, it's not even so much quality of thinking, but as a quality of perceiving and gaining perspective. And, you know, again, I'll go back to the analogy of, you know, it's the, the, the feeling of it. Maria Jose talked about the relaxation of it, of feeling relaxed. Um, there's also a feeling of sort of a pristine quality of it being clean. 
of it being smooth like a marble or glass or something that, you know, it's, it's not hot, it's not cold, it just feels clean and smooth and um, that allows for that relaxation because the, I'm not tripped up by prejudices and preconceptions and assumptions and biases and, you know, all these sort of things. So, yeah, it's like there's no friction between yes, yes. you and seeing things clearly. It's no friction. Yeah. Can we define the mature and immature expression of objectivity just a little bit more succinctly here? So, Maria Jose, how about I talk about the immature version and you talk about the mature version, <laughs> which is, you know, quite fitting for, <laughs> for, for us. All right. So um, the, the immature version, again, we always go back to the baby, right? The baby comes into the world and they have biases, right? Where, again, babies are not born blank slates. So they have biases. They have feelings toward things. But they don't have prejudices and preconceptions and judgments yet. Okay, they haven't learned who they should like and who they shouldn't like, who they should play with and who they shouldn't play with, and you know what kind of people we want to surround ourselves and what kind of people we don't want to surround ourselves. All these things that they learn as they go on, right? So they don't have that part of our biases yet. They develop that. As they start to grow, but they do still have, you know, attractions and aversions, right? They're, you know, I'm, I'm drawn to this. I'm, you know, uh, compelled away from that. So that's what makes it immature, right? It's not the, the defects in the marble are more built in than accumulated. And then over time, they start to become accumulated until we start to polish the marble. The mature versions is uh, the recognition and management of our subjectivity. So it's not that we polish it completely, but we just see what's the layers that are over the marble and are able to see through them sometimes. <laughs> uh, but at least acknowledging that those layers are there. That gives us perspective um, that allows us to get closer to objectivity without expecting, again, to be completely objective. We need to recognize, acknowledge, and manage subject, our subjectivity. And it's not a real marble. Just, just for <laughs> sure. anyone who's being overly literal out there, it's just, it's a, a marble's an analogy here. <laughs> Mirosa, can you, can you talk to us about how the strategy often substitutes for this sense of objectivity? We want to know how the world is, how things are. Uh, we need to understand. We want to understand the world and see it. But because we don't, because we've been filled with all these messages as well of how you should behave, how things should be, how your neighbors should uh, do things, whatever, we replace that understanding of the world with a set of rules and rules I mean not just laws or morals or it's just everything how things should be or how things are and in that desire to understand that or to see that when you're focusing on those things on those rules on those claims it's hard not to 
compare yourself and see where you are regarding those things. It's just, <laughs> it's hard not to try to be that way. So it's, that's kind of the automatic response to it. When, when the one doesn't have um, a feeling of objectivity, they feel incapable of knowing how to act, right? So I have to come up with a bunch of rules. I got to create manuals in my head for every situation. And that's the experience of that. Um, so, and as, as they start to redefine what it means to feel perfect, right? We always talk about redefining the strategy and rewriting our narratives. But as the one starts to learn that, oh, you know what? Being perfect doesn't mean knowing all the answers, right? Being perfect means willing to being willing to say, I don't know. Being perfect means not getting angry about things, you know, being as they are. There's, there's all kinds of sayings like the Japanese say, you know, don't get mad at, uh, at, at, excuse me, don't get angry at a dog for barking, right? It's what they do. Um, so they, they start to say, okay, there's, that's okay. And being perfect means, or more perfect means recognizing those things. What's, you look like what's you want that to face? say something, Maria Jose. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so... Now, what I said before, I think that it's an insight that I had not had before of like when you think about how things should be and how the world is, that focus is like an imposition, you know, like if I see how things should be, I should be that way. So I'll try to be that way. So I'll try to feel perfect. I'll try to be as things should be. So one thing is to see clearly, and another thing is to want to be perfect or feel perfect. Do be that thing that you think it should be. Mario, can we jump to, we've already talked about the connecting points a little bit here, but can you uh, explain those to us and how they interact with point one? The connecting points are point seven and point four. Uh, point four is individuality. Point seven is joy, the core quality. Um, as objectivity becomes stunted in the one, there's also a, a stunting of joy, as there is in all of us. But again, the one feels this more acutely uh, than some of the other types do. Because, again, if I'm not feeling objective, I'm sort of closing in, I'm tightening up, and that restricts my ability to feel joy. And I'm also starting to become rule-bound rather than able to step back and see clearly. So I start to lose my sense of individuality because it's not me who is perceiving. It's this set of rules that even though they're very individual, to me, they still feel like not me, okay? So it's not my perception of who I am. It's this construct that I've created of how I should be, okay? So they start to feel that loss of identity and of joy. When you don't see clearly and you have these set of roles to replace it and how it should be, and constantly see that gap of how things are and how they should be, 
you resent that. You start fighting. You start resisting uh, things as they are because they're not as they should be. So that's anything but joyful. And on the other hand, if you need to, if you lose sight of the complexity and simplify reality by using those rules that you think are objective, that you believe are how things should be and how you should be, it feels like you need to adhere to a standard. You need to adhere to something that it's like everyone should be like that. And, and that doesn't feel like you, that you're like an individual, but you are like a drone or something that should be like that. So again, it's not like the one or a point one, you experience the core qualities at the connecting points as the four or the seven would. I think that it's a very particular way for ones in how they experience individuality and joy or the standing of it. I think that's a really important point that we don't want to lose sight of that you just said there, Maria Jose, that even with these core qualities, they don't feel the same for everybody. Right? And, and this is one of my arguments with the way this, these related ideas are often taught that, oh, everybody's going to feel the exact same thing at these points and experience on them the exact same way because they exist outside of us, right? And so we're re-tapping into or reconnecting with something that exists outside of us or independently of us, even though it's within us as well. No, not really, right? We all will express these things in unique ways, okay? And you know, Maria Jose's experience of objectivity will be different from ours for a variety of reasons. Very similar, but subtly different as well. Maria Jose, can we uh, talk about the accelerators? What what can we do to continue to nurture objectivity? Um, the accelerator for point one to nurture objectivity is acceptance. And it seems simple. <laughs> so simple. But... Uh, Yes, very simple. Just do it. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's like when we talked about type four or point four and say, kind of stop comparing yourself. And well, this is a work of a lifetime, accepting things as they are. And people usually confuse that with validating or abdicating. And this is just, okay, this is what it is. And... Whether I like it or not, it's not going to change. It might change if I do something about it in the future. But today, it is what it is. And that applies to ourselves, to the world around us, to everything. Now, again, it's very easy to say or simple, but it's hard when you're trapped into these idealizations of how things should be or these uh, rules in your mind uh, because you resisted. It shouldn't be that way. You shouldn't have done that. I told you or whatever. And endless ways of manifesting that resistance. Now, when you do that, when you accept what it is, you can move faster into 
taking action to change it. So we're not talking about just leaving things as they are. We're talking about um, not resisting what it is at the moment. And it makes you more effective in changing it if that's what you want to do. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a struggle for me to accept that I'm superior to everyone that's around me. It's it's just, <laughs> you know, you just have to accept the way it is. But, you know, <laughs> all these plebes running around trying to be unique and artistic. <laughs> I, I don't think it's that you're superior oh, to everyone around okay. you. It's just that you're less worse <laughs> than the people around you, Creek. No. <laughs> Uh, yeah. When I think about it, again, I can't not think about the, the connecting point because when I am able to accept, I stop comparing myself to that standard or that idea of how things should be. Uh, so I, I disidentify from my preconceptions, and I also feel more joy. That relaxation that I was talking about before feels joyful or more joyful. You know? So acceptance helps mature all three core qualities for me. Uh, and did you touch on savoring, Maria Jose? I, I, I did I'm not. I'm not sure I missed it or not. Um, okay. I did not. So the, core the uh, accelerator at point seven is savoring. It's uh, kind of spending more time expand, extending our experience and finding pleasure in things. And when you accept them, it's a lot easier to do that. Or when you savor things longer, it's easier to accept them. So they're interrelated. Uh, but for me, it's like a lever. If I work on acceptance, it will help nurture all three core qualities naturally. So let's get down to specifics. So whether you're a type one or some other type trying to foster objectivity, um, what are some specific daily actions or weekly actions that they can participate in? We talked about the need to continually refine our working definition of striving to feel perfect, right? And it's to create space. To You know, when we work with the strategies, we always want to work on making them permeable, clarifying them, getting them to the point where they almost disappear so the other thing can come through. Okay, so it's working on our definitions and our, you know, how we manifest that definition and our behavior and our thoughts and our emotions. Uh, to create that sort of space. I also think that there's some value in becoming familiar with and studying the concept of wabi-sabi, which is a Japanese aesthetic about the beauty of imperfection, right? Of recognizing that very often it's in what we perceive as imperfection that the real treasure is found. So, uh, you know, we think of the, the Japanese teacup and the imperfections in it. Um, learning to kind of embrace that mindset is really useful for ones, I think, because it just makes them more comfortable with this idea. And 
I also encourage people, and I'm sure Maria Jose, you'll have some things to add to this, but I always encourage people to follow the chimpanzee rule, right? Um, is to remember that we humans share 98.4, 98.6% of our DNA with chimpanzees. And so when we look at people and we see them in all their glorious shortcomings, we remind ourselves that the difference between us and chimpanzees is pretty minimal. And any day that we're not swinging in trees and throwing poop at each other is a pretty good day. That gives us the perspective to lower our expectations of people so we can embrace this sort of acceptance. And I, I also just want to reemphasize that acceptance does not mean just saying, oh, well, right? But it's the, it's the, it's the lack of baggage that we get through acceptance that allows us to act more effectively and more quickly, right? Instead of ranting and raving why things are screwed up, we just get to work on fixing them, right? Or learning to accept that we can't fix them. So those are the key things I always focus on. Maria Jose, would you add to that? Yeah, I, I agree. I use it all the time. I just think that although some people find it offensive, <laughs> uh, to think of uh, about ourselves as chimpanzees or very close relatives to them. Uh, I think it just allows you to marvel at things around you more than when you have that expectation that we are these superior beings, you know. And I was also thinking about how, and these, I'm sure it applies to all core quality, or to all types, but to me, objectivity, it's kind of like a key to all core qualities. In some way, working on that objectivity allows me to feel more compassion, to feel more benevolent, to feel more vitality. And I'm touching on not on the, not on the connecting points, but the other points. It's my way into those core qualities without needing to work on all of them it naturally helps nurture the others. And uh, I think that understanding that it's, and I think in our whole approach, we try to look for the minimum thing that will have the biggest impact. And it's a lever. So working on acceptance, nurturing objectivity can help once, all of us, but I think that other types have a different way into that work, um, can help us nurture and foster the other qualities. I would agree. It's the, the core quality at our point is the, the lever, to use your word, the entrance to um, becoming more able to access all of them. To access the essence. Um, so moving, <laughs> delete that, <laughs> or at least we have to say that we don't agree. No, yeah, you're, you're fired. If you, <laughs> unless this is their first episode, like yeah. you're well aware of where you stand on that word. Um, <laughs> so, um, folks, uh, I hope you find your lever, and um, <laughs> thanks for listening. We'll uh, we'll see you next week. 
Thanks for listening to the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. If you're interested in more information or talking to Mario, MJ, or myself, feel free to reach out to us through the links in the show notes or by emailing info at awarenesstoaction.com. All episode transcriptions and further information can be found at awarenesstoaction.com slash podcast.